Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Amalia Mesa Baines. The Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive at the University of California, Berkeley, is presenting Amalia Mesa Baines' Archaeology of Memory, the first retrospective of the pioneering Chicana artist. The exhibition includes nearly 60 works, including 14 of Mesa Baines' major installations. It was curated by Maria Esther Fernandez and Laura E. Perez and is on view through July 23rd. The outstanding catalog was published by the Berkeley Art Museum in association with University of California Press. Amazon and IndieBound offer it for about $50. Don't miss it. Across half a century, Mesa Baines has foregrounded Chicana forms such as altares, home altars, ofrendas, offerings to the dead, descansos, roadside resting places, and capillas, homeyard shrines, into contemporary art. Her work often spotlights domestic spaces and the construction of landscape in ways that highlight colonial erasure. Among the museums which have presented solo exhibitions of Mesa Baines's work are the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, the Williams College Museum of Art, the Fowler Museum at UCLA, and the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, that one just late last year. On the second segment, Another World, the Transcendental Painting Group, 1938-45, to at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. But first, Amalia Mesa Baines, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is proud to announce the opening of the new galleries for Art of the Islamic Worlds. The galleries display the entire MFAH collection of Islamic art, enhanced by the Hussein Afshar collection, an exquisite selection of Persian masterworks. See historic paintings, ceramics, precious metalware, finely woven silk fabrics, and carpets. Learn more at mfah.org slash islamicworlds. Experience the collision and circulation of cultures through Griselda Rosas's collection of textile drawings and sculptural installations. The San Diego Tijuana-based artist incorporates natural pigments and collage with adopted embroidery skill and inventive imagery to explore themes of inheritance and intergenerational knowledge. Now, through August 2023, see Rosas's first solo museum exhibition at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. Support for the MAN podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Faye Heavy Shield Confluences, opening March 10th and curated by Tamara Schenkenberg. Confluences features a selection of Faye Heavy Shield's drawings and sculptures from the 1980s to the present, alongside two commissions responding to landscapes and histories of the greater St. Louis area. During a career that spans more than 30 years, Heavy Shield's work draws upon her family histories, traditional Guyana stories, language, and knowledge, as well as childhood experiences in the residential school system. The spare power of the prairie landscape of her home community informs Heavy Shield's poetic, often minimal aesthetic vocabulary and use of humble materials. Join the Pulitzer for the opening reception for Faye Heavy Shield Confluences on Friday, March 10th, and a public conversation with Faye Heavy Shield and Tamara Schenkenberg on Saturday, March 11th. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Amalia Mesa Baines, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Before we move on into specific works and such, I want to discuss the key forms and concepts that have motivated your practice. 
So let's start naturally, obviously enough, with your interest in altars and ofrendas. Ofrendas being the offerings placed in a home altar during the annual and traditionally Mexican Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead celebration. So does your interest in altars and ofrendas come from the same place? And if so, is it an interest that is biographical or did it come later, like maybe as part of academic study? It's a kind of a two-part thing. I grew up in a Mexican community in uh, Santa Clara Valley long before it was Silicon Valley. It was all orchards and most people were farm workers or cannery workers. And it was very tight-knit Mexican community. And as is the case in many, I think, underserved communities, there was a lot of loss and death. And so I spent a fair amount of my childhood going to graveyards and cleaning graves. And and death was very present and not in a negative way. It simply was a way of remembering. And then when I joined a program called Teacher Corps in San Francisco, I was in my 20s. And my mentor was Yolanda Garfias Wu, who was a very well-known Oaxaquenia artist and teacher, backstrap, bloom, weaver, and also the queen of Day of the Dead. She uh, was raised with it, and she introduced me to it as a practice. And that was probably... Oh, my gosh, somewhere in the 70s. I can't know, maybe the 60s. I don't remember anymore. But I took to it very easily because Mm -hmm. I had already had this experience of remembering, of celebrating the dead, of recognizing the sense of an ancestry. But the Chicano movement, which I entered into really in the early 70s, had pretty distinct roles in the process of what we call cultural reclamation. And I took the role of altarista or someone engaged with both the home altar as a form and the ofrenda or day of the dead. And I have to say that people do confuse the two. And we as Chicanos exchange the words in a way that's really not accurate. A home altar is a permanent ongoing record of a family and the living and the dead are mixed in that. And that stays in the home. The ofrenda or offerings to the dead are extended, as you mentioned, during the days of the dead. In the U.S., we don't get to go to graveyards and have picnics and do what they do in Mexico because this is America and we're not allowed to do that. Graveyards lock up at night. So in some respect, I translated what would happen in a graveyard into cultural centers. Do you remember what, say, the first altars or ofrendas you made were? Yes, it was sort of more formal. I did a little window ofrenda for Frida Kahlo at the Galeria de la Raza in San Francisco, and that would have been around 74, 75. And then we had a big show called the Fifth Sun Show. It was very, the largest Chicano show in California at that time. And it was curated by Ralph Madridiaga, who also headed the Galeria de la Raza. And that one was a Frida Diego ofrenda. And that was at UC Berkeley when they had the old Brutalist building. I Uh, listen, love it. I know, me too. It was hard to work in those strange walls. But that was the very first big one. Then in 77, we we did the homenaje of Frida Kahlo. But I had already been doing small ones, always at home. I've had, had a home altar since the 60s. So it is a tradition that's an innovation that I've made. I mix things together. It's very, not very orthodox, but it's my way of working. 
So we're going to come back to altars and ofrendas throughout our conversation because nothing could really be more inevitable. <laughs> yes. But before we do that, before we move on, I want to raise the other major pillar of your practice, and that is your address of memory and the construction of memory, which actually is even kind of within the title of this ex- exhibition at Berkeley. And this is another question that kind of gets at this nexus between both biography and kind of professional academic life. And that is, why does the construction of how we came to experience or know the things we carry with us in life, so the construction of memory, interest you? As I said, you know, I did did get a PhD in psychology. I never went into the practice of it because I was pulled by, I feel, sort of the historical moment of Chicanos and the rising up of these community-based organizations. So I had a job, so to speak, but I, I also was highly overemployed. So I taught public school for almost 20 years in San Francisco. I did television shows. So there were all these intersections. But the one thing that I kept going back to is that there were structures within the way that Chicanos and Latinos worked. And I found this was true for many other groups that had to do with memory. And also, I think I was a little bit ticked off is the word, I guess, irritated by the idea that people felt in the art historical world that you could just lump people together, ethnic shows. And I felt like they, they were it was lazy curatorial and art historical practice. We're not all the same, and we weren't all together making things. There were things that drove that. So cultural reclamation, which is a term Tomasi Barofrasto and I generated in the early years, maybe in the 70s, was a way into the idea of memory as a strategy. And because I'm a psychologist, I was interested in memory as a cognitive practice. And I began to see that that cognitive practice, that political insight was also an artistic strategy. So I began to look at how do we do it and why do we do it? And that was the through line that connected Chicano work to Latino work, to African-American work, to work from Asian-Americans. I was very lucky to come of age amidst many, many other practitioners, theorists, and artists who were interested in that notion of memory as a resilient strength that allowed us to tolerate the discrimination, the abuse, the the erasure. But our job was to re-remember. And so my early curatorial practices, I did a show called Ceremony of Memory and then a later one called Ceremony of Spirit, was really about how it, it is that artists use memory as a trope and also almost a device in order to call up questions of racism, of colonialism, anti-feminism, whatever the concerns were. I found that memory was a bridge. I often say it's the bridge between the living and the dead between the past and the present. And it allows us this fluidity of movement to be able to recapture, relocate, and sometimes represent things that have been lost to us. And that as people who were seen as foreigners, immigrants, um, I was a child, wetbacks, whatever the term of the day was, murderers, rapists, as Trump would say, we had other issues at the core of it, and that's the sense of origin, of belonging. And memory was the way to go back and get that and use that both artistically, politically, and culturally. So for me, remembering was like putting, like remembering, putting 
parked back together again that had come apart, been taken apart, or had been ripped apart. So it still is a, a phenomena for me that I never get tired of examining in some way or another. The beginning of your answer, you referred to the art institutional practice of essentialism, which was widespread in the late 60s and early 70s, became widespread again in the late 80s and early 90s, and is once again with us in really frustrating, disappointing, and problematic ways. If you are an administrator at an art museum, please go back and re-listen to the first part of that answer. I think the earliest work represented in the catalog of the show at Berkeley is Altar to Five Women from 1976. It is an ofrenda, you know, about which we were we were speaking a moment ago. And you mentioned that you started making those in, in, in around 74 or 5. Again, this one is 76. And I thought it might be a good work to talk about as a way of understanding how you were, I don't know, building sounds so literal, but also it's not wrong, <laughs> how you were building these works. So who are the five women? And how is maybe this a good example of, of the directions in which you will soon follow? Well, thank you. Yeah, it's a, one of my favorites because it was one of my first larger scale ones in a gallery setting. And the Galeria de la Raza was a community center. We use the word Galeria as a gallery, but it's not like commercial galleries that we understand in, you know, other parts of the country. It was a community-based organization. And I think it still exists, right? Well, absolutely. We're getting yeah. a new building coming online in August. And yeah. it's a because we're past 50 years now. And I was there at the beginning, so I feel very joyful that we have survived all that has happened in these years. But when I first started there, I mentioned earlier my mentor, Yolanda Garfias, who, who taught in San Francisco Unified School District, and I was in teacher corps and guided by her. And she was close to the people at the Galeria, and she brought me in to do a work while she also did a piece. And there was a third friend of ours, Emilia, and we all did pieces that were personal. My five women were my grandmother, Mariana, on my father's side, my maternal grandmother, Amalia, for whom Amalia is my middle name. Honestly, you won't believe this. I was born Maxine Amalia Mesa Mates. And I used to say, <laughs> mother, why Maxine? Everybody's named Carmen or, or <laughs> something. And, and you give me Maxine. It's like this French and German name. She goes, oh, honey, it sounded like a movie star's name. And in L.A., where they were growing up, that was your goal. If you were a boy, you went into boxing. If you were a girl, you tried for the movies. Anyway, so Amalia is my maternal grandmother. And then there was my tia or my aunt, Angelina. And then I had another friend who had passed, and that was Susanna Jessup. And then I had by then discovered Frida. So she became another part of that story. So the, the five women represented a span of both family and friends. And it was sort of my first attempt at anchoring a notion of ancestry, but I was very naive. I made a cast of my own face and put it at the top of the ofrenda. And all the viejitas, the old ladies in the neighborhood, they came in and said, Mija, what are you doing? You can't put the living on an ofrenda. 
You can put the living and the dead on an altar at home, but not in a friend. It can only be the dead. So I had to, I had a picture of my grandmother with my baby sister on her lap, and they told me that I had to put a little white strip of paper over my sister so as for not to have anything bad. And I, I learned all these things. Also, I tried making sugar skulls early on. I didn't know there had to be a binder. So I even had people be <laughs> sugar from Mexico, and they still fell apart. So I ended up doing soft sculptures. So all the skulls on that are soft sculpture because prior to that, I'd been a textile artist. So it was a very fledgling attempt. But and, and, and you know, all of the work from the 70s partway into the 80s, almost the end, it is, is all gone. It was all ephemeral. Could I interrupt to set that up? Because that was actually going to be my next question. So, so this work we're talking about, Altar to Five Women, is from 76. And with maybe one exception... All of the sculptures and works on paper in the exhibition were made after 1990 or so. And, and so you'd been making work for almost, almost 20 years by the point the exhibition more or less starts. And so I think there are, as I understand it, kind of commingled biographical and conceptual reasons that collided in a significant life event that you experienced in the early 1990s. And so I thought before I let you <laughs> explain how all the work gets, uh, got, got taken apart for many years, I thought maybe we should explain that. Well, the early years were ephemeral, and that was purposeful. And first of all, the tradition of the days of the dead is a momentary one. I like the word fugitive because it leaves, it goes. But what is important is that you give everything, everything you have, economically, so know artistically in that moment to honor those that you love who have left you and so in some sense I made pieces that were never meant to last and that went all the way from the 70s up until maybe the mid 80s by the mid 80s I started making work so even in this show the Dolores del Rio altar actually began in 84 then it was redone for Intar in 87 it traveled in the Demon Design show in uh, Europe and never came back. I lost the. That happened at the end of the uh, end of the eighties, early nineties. So in this show, the work is maybe the last thirty years of my life, but there are antecedents in it that go back maybe to the early eighties. But before that, no, nothing lasts because I didn't mean for it to. And you, I think it's hard for people to understand that. For those of us who were working within the confines of a political movement, we were anti-elitist. We didn't intend to be in museums. We didn't intend to be in commercial galleries. We were critiquing that and trying to build our own infrastructure. So I never made anything to sell. I never made anything to be collected. I made things that were necessary and that for me to live my life, I had to make. If I didn't make them, then those feelings, those experiences, that rage, whatever it was, would just have to stay inside of me. And I knew that wasn't healthy. So I made things. And now I look back and I see that some of the lasting pieces have a, a value that I didn't see even when I made them. So yeah, the, the show is pretty much starts in the late 80s and goes forward. Did some health issues you experienced in the early 1990s influence your thinking on how art might or should or could be more lasting? Yes. 
It's uh, interesting because I didn't think about it until I was doing the retrospective, which is aptly named because it's a retrospection and an introspection. And what I discovered is that everything that's in that show was made while I was not well. I developed a lung heart disease that was supposed to be terminal in 1990, 91, around there. And they were talking to my family about a double transplant heart lung. And then something changed. Either it was the wrong diagnosis or or there are miracles. I don't know. And then that began to change. And then later, of course, came the accident. And then later, the reassertion of a new heart disease. So essentially, the turning point in the 90s was the heart-lung disease and the possibility that I would not be able to continue working. And I realized, and I think I learned it from some of the students I worked with when I was doing the early uh, Holy Communion piece at the Little Whitney, and I was working with students, and one of them said to me, oh, my mother's coming from, I think it was Colombia or something like that, Latin America, later this year, so can she come and see the work? And I said, no, I'm sorry, it'll be down by then. And he said, well, where will it go? And I said, well, it doesn't go anywhere. And he was so shocked, and he said to me, you mustn't do that. You have to make things last, otherwise we won't know, and my mother will never see it. And I went home and thought that in some way I had privileged myself with this ephemeral notion. And now I felt to some degree much more mortal and more finite. And I decided that I would need to make work that might might actually last. I didn't think about being collected. That was never, ever even in the question. And as a matter of fact, I'm sort of marveling now that people are interested in collecting the work. I've only sold three big pieces in my whole 50-year career because we have never, and I say we as Chicanas, we've never been in the, the world of art collecting, a very, very few of us. So I had to make that decision then for very practical reasons of my own existence. And and it was a good change, uh, but it was a difficult one because I wasn't used to working that way. Each of us has once or twice referenced the earliest work in the show, which is a work that dates back to the early 80s. It's titled An Afrenda for Dolores Della Rio. It's in the Smithsonian American Art Museum's collection. So let's talk about Del Rio for a moment. You've made a number of works in the 1980s about Del Rio. So Del Rio was a Mexican actress, the first female Latin American crossover Hollywood star, I think. And she had a gobsmackingly long career. (laughs) She began in the silent film era in the 1920s, and her career continued into the 1970s. And I think I read that you met her when you were a child? No, I met her as an adult. It was the year before she died. And uh, the San Francisco Film Festival was doing an homage to her. And we had our own film group, Cine Acción. We would host events. There were a lot of the Chicano world of artists filled with filmmakers as well as artists and writers and playwrights. I mean, it's a very large community across the whole country. And so we all sort of know each other over the years. And so the Cine Acción decided to do a special reception for her. So after the film festival, she came to wherever we were hosting, and I can't remember now. And first of all, she was still stunningly beautiful, and she must have been in her 80s by then. And I got to meet her, and I was, you know, just totally tongue-tied. And then the next year she died. 
and I decided that I would do a piece for her. And interestingly enough, the Mexican Museum in San Francisco had been bequeathed a collection by Adriana Williams from Covarrubias, the uh, no, from Barragan, the architect who who had the Covarrubias collection, and the Covarrubiases were peers of Dolores, Frida, Diego. I mean, all of those people. They lived a high life in Mexico that's hard for us to even fathom. And so I got to see a collection of photographs. And I remember sitting in my bed at night, laying out these photos, and there were many of Dolores. Dolores in a sunsuit, sitting on a rock yoga, meditating. There was Dolores, Rosa Covarrubias, and Frida laying on a bed with their heads together. I mean, there were amazing photographs. So I picked a few, and that was the early homenaje that I did. And it was the turning point because there was something so highly feminine about her life. She was a beauty on both sides of the, you know, binational sphere. She played exotic and insanely, you know, beautiful women in the American films, but in the Mexican films, which she went after she aged out of the American, she went to the Mexican films and she did Maria Candelaria, La Abandonada. They were all films of very strong-willed women. And so she had really a dual career and then went back into the U.S. later in life for Cheyenne Autumn and a few. She was like Elvis Presley's mother in a film. So she was a woman of great beauty, but also of great power. She formed the first child care centers for women across Mexico working in the professions of film and theater. She was an amazing person. And so I was lucky to do that piece. But as I say, that piece went on to be eventually redone and then lost in Europe. So I had to reconstruct it for the Kara show in 1992, which then the Smithsonian acquired in 1995. So to make sure I got that right, Del Rio's death prompted the piece, the original piece? Yes, yes. I wanted to do an homenaje to her. It was tied to my mother. My mother, Marina Gonzalez Mesa, was a, a very, very beautiful woman from very you know, humble origins. But she had seen Dolores several times in L.A. when they would come to the prize fight, Cesar Romero, Anthony Quinn, all of them. The, and she would, oh, yeah, and Dolores used to come with Orson Welles in these big, big limos dressed in furs. And my mother was just stunned by her. In the actual piece, there is a second photograph next to one of Dolores on the bottom tier, and that is my mother. They allowed me, when I sold the piece, to put it in there, even though my mother was still alive. But I knew that, you know, she was aging, and I thought, one day I want somebody to see her next to Dolores. I've listened on in on people looking at it, and they'll go, you think that's her sister? And I love it. I love it. Because she could have been. They looked a bit alike. My mother loved her. My mother talked about her. You know, I'm the first generation of television, so we used to watch the late show and the late, late show. I was always sleepy in school because I stayed up watching Mexican stars in the in the cinema in the U.S. on television because I would not have seen them otherwise. So one of the striking things about this work and in many of your works is that you join forms that have relationships with Catholicism to things or people who do not necessarily come from the church. Here, a, ma you know, a, a major figure who is famed from pop culture. What 
do you hope happens both to the consideration of the cultural figure and perhaps to our understanding of Catholicism and its forms by putting those things together? I like hybridity, and I'm prone to mixing things together. And also, I left the church when I was um, about 20 years old. Um, I was involved in a bad automobile accident, and someone died, and I felt guilty and responsible. And my parents sent the priest to talk to me, and he was of no use whatsoever. And I I made a, a decision at that moment that this was not a way for me to understand my life or solve my problems. That doesn't mean that I didn't hold on to aspects of spirituality. So often my Catholic or redis Catholic imagery is really a hybrid imagery. It's sometimes Caribbean materials that have, you know, dualities. It is sometimes a way of my looking at issues of feminism within the church. So I'm a great follower of rebellious and unruly nuns like Santa Teresa de Avila, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. So Catholicism is a language for me because it came into my life when I was so young. It was the first time I ever saw master paintings. Our little church bulletin that they cranked out on a mimeo was actually the first time I saw a Caravaggio. I mean, any of the really master. I didn't go to a museum until I was in my 20s. So there was no access for me to see that or know that. And so there's something in the vocabulary of my images that's wedded to those early Catholic encounters, but they're not based in Catholicism. On the other end of it, I found my way into a sort of feminism by using materials from saints, especially women that suffered, and the popular cultural figures like Frida Kahlo or Dolores Del Rio or Margarita Cancino, known as Rita Hayworth, and many, many others who, Tomasi Barofrasto describes them as my sort of feminist pantheon. And, and it's, it's one of the issues of why feminism didn't really work in the early years for me, which is because the vocabulary, the iconography, the history of strong women in my life came from within the culture and within even the religion. So I look at people like Anna Tanayuka. Emma led the pecan strikes in Texas. In the 30s, there was Josefina Bright, Luisa Moreno, and so many others that were part of that. I think we're going to come back to labor leaders a little later on. But before we do, this seems, you know, as we're discussing an ofrenda for Dolores Del Rio, seems like a good time to raise your use of color. Often your works are... I don't want to say dominated because that's not really right, but I think it would be fair to say that you carry a single color through a work pretty often. So, you know, there's a work such as Venus Envy, Chapter 1, First Holy Communion, Moments Before the End, which dates to 93 slash 2022, which carries white, the color white, all the way through the work. In the Virgin's Garden from 94 slash 22, in Venus Envy Chapter 2, the harem and other enclosures, you carry the color green all the way through the work. It's a move you like. Where does the move come from, and, and why do you use it? I think it's really more like setting a scene. You know, I when I started doing the pieces years and years ago, they were smaller, and then they kept getting bigger, and before I knew it, they had sort of turned into rooms and environments. And then one of the ways to sort of catch that was 
to keep the color constant. Another way was the fabric and the drapery. So I do a lot of framing with drapery, you know, because I like fabric and billowing. And it's sort of a, a Baroque instinct that I carry. And over mm -hmm. the years, I've worked a lot with the idea of uh, the natural world, the Siwadlampa piece, which is uh, the third chapter of Venus Envy, is about the women who, in the Aztec afterlife, die in childbirth, which is sort of an irony because people like myself and Judy Bach and Carmen Lomas Garza and Patsy Valdez and so many of us in that early generations, we really didn't have children. We did our work instead. So I picked Siwadlampa for the fun of it and also because I was trying to create a concept of, of Mother Nature. So the big figure that sleeps on the carpet, which was originally a carpet of moss and is now a handmade textile by a woman named Mallory Zondick. So I decided to make it easier to travel the piece by not having to have someone on their hands and knees like I used to, laying little pieces of moss in a circle. Instead, I create help design and create this this rug but the idea of the greenery was really about the idea of the natural landscape the world sort of regrown there is as i've aged i think more and more interest in the idea of renewal both as a phenomena of of a sort of natural world but also in your own life as you heal and recover so curanderas botanica for example absolutely had to have a green wall green is the color of healing if you ever look at the little color palette that Frida Kahlo created for herself, it's very funny. Some of the colors like yellow green are like the underwear of ghosts. She has like all these funny little ways of talking about, but green was the color of hope and healing. So for me to choose a color is usually to indicate a direction that I feel the piece is going. And it doesn't matter to me if the viewer knows that. It's really... I'm trying to set a, almost like a stage. I think, you know, if life had been different, I might have gone into the theater because I like the idea of a stage set, an environment, a world you enter that is separate from the world you're in as a viewer. Why I use mirrors, why I reflect so I can engage people, why I use scent so the olfactory draws you in. I want you for a little while to lose your bearings. I want you for a little while to be destabilized from the world you're in and enter the world I've made for you. So that's one part of the color. And it's also one part of the other strategies. And I think over time as an artist, you develop both a vocabulary and a set of strategies to accomplish what it is you might intend. That's probably four or five works now we've talked about in which you reference or highlight or feature the domestic sphere. I think maybe a, a good work to talk about why the domestic sphere is important to you might be works of yours that address Sorwana, who's prominent in 17th and 18th century Latin American art. Why was Sorwana, is Sorwana important to you? And is some of that importance her creation of her own domestic sphere? Oh, my favorite gal, Sorwana. <laughs> You, well, you and every Latin American art scholar I know. 
I know. It, you know, she's such a, an extraordinary being. And I, there's almost no way to even encapsulate that except to say that her nickname was La Decima Musa, the Tenth Muse. She was renowned in Latin America as a child prodigy. She went into the church because she was born out of wedlock and there was no real option for her to marry or have wealth or, or a stable life other than the church. And they used to send people from Europe to interview her because she was such a prodigy. And there was questions about how did she know these things? What I found fascinating about her was that she represented for me a potentiality. I was heading into my dissertational studies. This was in the early 70s. Not very common for women in my generation. I once went to a talk where they described once in, one in a million, and it was uh, Mexican-descended women in my generation, first getting through grade school, then high school, then college, then master's. Then, and by the time it was over, you were one in a million, and I was at that time. But I looked for some signposts of the possibility of, of using my intellect. My entire childhood, I pretended that I wasn't as smart as I was because it made me undesirable. And when you're young, you want to be beautiful and desirable and being smart is not a right way to do it. Not in the 50s in America or the 60s even. So I found her through many, many other Chicana scholars who had studied her and interviewed people who her or knew about her and had studied her. But most of all, she gave me hope and I began to look at her space. You know, she was renowned because at that time the church would allow nuns if the family had money to bring money into the church. And so they were allowed to have, you know, uh, lodgings that were maybe a little more spectacular than the average nun. So she had a library of thousands of books. She was a musicologist. She was an amateur chemist. She was a great poet. And she came into being this incredible time in what was called New Spain then and had patronage from the viceroy and the viceroy's wife. So she was in a, in a position to be able to look at the slave narratives and slave songs, which she translated into poetry. She wrote in Nahuatl, um, the ancient language. She had all of these insights into a world in change. And she also was considered the first feminist in the new world. When she tried to discuss the mercy of God, a theological question, which she was enticed into doing by one of the bishops, he then published a letter which he signed, Sor Filotea, or, you know, the sister of philosophy, and chastised her for her arrogance. And so basically she wrote a response to that, which is called La Respuesta. And it is a famous, famous poem in which she cites all the women that she knows of in history from Egyptian times forward, who were women of thought and character. And it's an extraordinary writing for somebody in the 17th century. It's totally amazing. And I found an image of her. There are many of them, but there's a famous one. And I put it over my desk. I got a copy and I used to look at it and think to myself, okay, if she did this, I can do this. Of course, her life ended badly because after being taken to task for her arrogance, they basically put her into service and she was to care for the nuns who were out in the community and who had contracted. It was either smallpox or, or cholera. And she died at the age of 32. They had dismantled her library. They had taken everything from her. But in the richest moments, she had a space, 
a generative intellectual, cultural, and one would say feminist space in her domestic world. I have written a piece, I wrote it way back in the 90s, and it's still circulating. It's called Domesticana. And there's a show now at Museo del Barrio in New York called Domesticanex for the next generation who have taken my musings, they're sort of theoretical musings, on how feminism plays itself out in a, in the Chicana and Latino world of the domestic, how you use the things that basically suppress you to liberate yourself. So we use uh, the domestic skills, the altars, the the home records, the the beautiful things that our mothers and grandmothers gave to us to set ourselves free, to liberate ourselves from the patriarchy of our own culture and from the larger society. So Domesticana was sort of something I wrote post Sorwana. I started Sorwana in the 80s, the very first one, and then yeah. there have been other versions of it since then. And the latest version is my interpretation of her space. And I interjected, as I do often with others, with contemporary material. So on her desk is a, a strip of data. And the data, which I started accumulating in the 80s, I did a television show called Latin Tempo in the height of the AIDS movement, the dropout movement, all of the sort of crisis that we were going through in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. And so I used all that. And then we updated every so many years. The data now includes many other things that are really a record of the changes and in some degree growth of the Latino community across the U.S. So I think if I were Sorwana now, I would want to know this. So I sometimes place contemporary material in her historic space, because I know that this is where she would have headed had her life not ended, and that there are contemporary Sorwanas that are still doing this work in liberation theology and other places in the world where they take care of others and where they ask the critical questions in a sort of post-colonial world. That's the work on paper on the desk in the contemporary version of the piece, right? In the 2021 or 22? Yeah. We will have images of both that work on paper, the 94 work and the 21 version all on manpodcast.com. I hope you, hope you all are taking notes. You mentioned having a representation of a portrait of Sorwana on um, a wall in your home or your studio. I'm guessing that's the uh, mega famous Miguel Cabrera portrait from the middle of the 18th century. Yes. And so that's the painting in which Sorwana is portrayed with the library of her own creation, confidently, challengingly, even looking at the viewer as she's turning a page in one of her own books. It is one of the most um, iconic portraits of, of the 18th century. Is there any way in which Sorwana's management and construction of her own domestic space in that Miguel Cabrera painting informed how you chose to make works about domestic space? In some degree. You know, my favorite thing about the paintings, and there's another one of her that I use on a mirror piece, is that she chastises the painter for a, trying to seduce her with her own vanity. And she says at the end, it basically, no matter what you portray of me in the end, we are all nothing but 
a smoke and void. In other words, we all die. It's a true vanitas statement. You know, it's a way of looking at beauty and and all of that as temporal. And and so that part of it is very important to me, that I understand that whatever I accrue, whatever I have, it will go in the end. It doesn't matter. So I think that she's really talking about the lasting really the lasting power of intellectual thought and love, you know, that, that mm-hmm. everything else is false. So for me, my own domestic space does sort of look like Sir Juana's library, except that's probably a little <laughs> messier. But my construction of domestic space in the works that I've made runs all the way from her space to the Curanderas Botanica, which is like a healing space. So I, I use the idea of space as both domestic, but also in some way personal. I make it my own. That space in Curanderas Botanica is very reminiscent of my own home altar. I realize sometimes I snatch things off my altar and put them in the pieces. And then later I'm traumatized when someone wants to buy it because I don't want to give up my things. It's not a good attitude to have to be an artist is not wanting to sell things because you don't want to let go of things. Curanderas Botanica has a medicine cabinet. And this work was supported by Franklin uh, Sermons when he was at Manil doing the show Neo Hoodoo, Art of Another Faith or Forgotten Faith. And he enticed me to do this work by offering to help me, you know, finance the because they're expensive, the pieces I make. And so he said, well, he would get me a medicine cabinet and. I, I thought, oh, my God, I've been wanting one for years. When I go to hospitals, which I do quite frequently because of my many challenges, all I do is oogle their equipment and thinking, oh, my God, I want that cabinet. So he got me a cabinet, and I loaded up the five shelves with the healing stories of all of my family, who are now all gone. At the time I began it, they were not, but they are all gone now. So it's it's hard for me to think that someone would really like to have that. And would I be willing to give up? But what would happen to it if I kept it anyway? You know, it's like it all comes to nothing in the end. One of the investigations you've conducted and works on paper are interrogations of white supremacy and the construction of whiteness. Two of those works, Strange Fruit from 2010 and Ancient Cartographies from 2010, Riff on Albert Bierstadt paintings. Both works are part of a series that riffs on the work of political geographer Edward Soja and his 1989 book, Postmodern Geographies, The Reassertion of Space in Critical Social Theory, which is a hell of a title. Hell of a book. (laughs) (laughs) I might need a dictionary to get through that title, though. I, I mean, I only went to journalism school. So before we talk about each individual work, why Bierstadt? Well, I think I came upon him because I was already looking, and I think this is very prevalent in my generation, is examining the artifacts of the so-called westward movement or the idea of the discovery, whether it's the early one in the 1500s or the later ones in the 1700s, 1800s, is the idea of how do we get here thinking that this was an empty space that could be filled with Anglo-Saxons coming across? Why? Why, why? Did they not notice there were lots and lots of people there? whether they were native people or later they were mixed race people or, and, and so I come upon this, what he termed as innocent spatiality. 
And I always thought of it as the lie. You know, the lie is that this beautiful paradise was empty for the taking. And so I look at like Lewis and Clark and the botany uh, specialists and all of these people as, as tools of, of colonization. They were ways to document the so-called empty space and allow people to think they could fill that space. And it was also a way, I think, to acknowledge the wealth that was there in lumber, in gold, in mining, in every way, without saying it. So some of those things predate even the gold, you know, the, the movement of this discovery of gold. And, and, and also, in my generation, we have a terrible preoccupation with the annexation. Many people describe the Chicano movement as beginning in 1848. The minute we're driven out and the U.S. annexes 51.4% of Mexico's northern empire, we're toast. You know, Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the 10th Amendment, it's just gone. Within like a few years, everything that was promised and negotiated in that treaty is gone. Free free travel across the border, the rights to language and culture, ownership of land, all gone. And so I always thought, as I began to understand what that meant, that there had to be a way that you convinced people that it was okay to take things. Oh, because it wasn't anybody there. It doesn't really belong to anybody. And so you almost use a Native American thinking against Native people. You know, we don't own the land. We live here and we're sort of custodians. Oh, well, if you don't own it, then I'll just take it. And so Beardstadt to me was one of the tools of that movement and a very seductive, beautiful tool. I mean, when you look at those paintings, they are like paradise. I mean, they're really, really so filled with such natural beauty. And then when I discovered that the same trees that he paints in the 1870s with the same trees the Mexicans are being lynched in after. People don't realize this. Okay, the Mexican-American War, for lack of a better title, is 1846 to 1848, but the 10 years after, the 20 years after, is like a continuous battle over holding the border. There are a group of Mexicans called Goros Blancos, or the White Caps. And, and of course, like Joaquin Murieta and others, they're seen as bandits. No, they're not bandits. They're trying to protect the land they were promised to, to keep as the border was set in. And, you know, we can't even monitor the border now. The border then was a natural landscape, almost uncontrollable. So they rode on their horses with their little white caps, trying to save farms and ranches along that border. So for me, when I look at that period of time, and then by the time you get to 1870, we're still making it look like nobody's home. You can have it. It's beautiful. And I found these photographs in uh, books on the Chicano history, and it really shows you who's being lynched. It's not just black people. That's bad enough. But in the West, it's the Mexicans. And we're fighting over the rights to Native Americans and Mexicans who own gold and silver mines. That's over. And we're fighting over the right to the land along the border. We just dug up under Trump the Tohono Ono's graveyard right along Arizona's border. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So to me, asking the question about what Beardstadt was really painting was absolutely critical. And also, I feel sort of as an artist, 
I have the leeway to merge things. And I used to start my slideshows for, you know, when I would actually have to go and lecture with an image of Beardstadt's trees, the oak trees in San Cruz, 1870s, and the pictures of the lynchings in Santa Cruz in 1870s. And one day the slides got stuck together in the machine. This was before computers. And I went, oh my God. And that's how Strange Fruit came about. And of course, named for Billie Holiday's song about lynching. I think, I think Ken Gonzalez Day may have a work titled Strange Fruit as well. The Bierstadt painting in that work of yours is known today by a title that Bierstadt certainly didn't give to it, Pioneers of the Woods, California. It is at the High Museum in Atlanta. The other Bierstadt is, the, the other Bierstadt in one of your works, Ancient Cartographies, say that five times fast, apocryphally known as Sunrise Yosemite Valley, a painting probably from the late 1860s or very, very early 1870s. It's at the M. Carter Museum. It's known as Sunrise. It's not a picture of a sunrise. It's a sunset. We'll leave that alone for now. What did you, you added two things to Bierstadt's painting. One is a plant. We'll come back to that in a moment. And the other is something else in the middle. What is the thing in the middle and why did you add it? So this was a technique I was using. I started it around 1990 when I first started doing, I call them the botanicals, because I had discovered Badianus's botanicals and found out that there were native painters doing these in what was then New Spain, later Mexico. And I was using it as a way into a counter-quincentennial and then later a counter-sesquicentennial. So I used the discovery of America and then later the annexation as two points in a sort of historical and political intervention for myself. And I wanted to use the most benign elements to show how easily it was for the invaders, I I like to call them, to change the nature of what we knew about the West, about Mexico. So the Badianas Botanicals are the plants. And then I started looking at cartography and I started looking at maps. And I found this image where they're holding up a map of California, two Native Americans, as though it were a blanket. And there's a little tiny bear walking across. And so I superimposed those layers over the beard stack. And at one point, it is the beginning of another piece that I did, which is called What the River Gave to Me. It's a 14-foot sculpture with glass rocks illuminated from underneath that has the departure points in Mexico on one side of the mountain and the arrival points in the United States on the other side. And each rock, and there are about 30 of them, is engraved with the names of the families who made the first crossing into the U.S. from Mexico. And then later I expanded it to Puerto Rico and Jews in Europe. I just, then the dead. So my rocks have multiplied. But they were part of that original series of prints. The prints for me are like workbooks. So I use them to examine material that exists that I think are part of the disguise, as uh, Soja calls it, you know, the disguise that that allows us not to see the real 
results of sort of human geography and oppression and all the the taking of land. He allows us to use terms like innocent spatiality, disguise of human geography. They're, They're terms that are so useful to almost anybody working in a field that's rehistoricizing. So I use those ways of thinking about the prints. And the prints have layers because they're digital. I'm not a printmaker, but I find images I like and I work with people who help me layer them. And so that series uh, is also tied to an earlier series on my family and when they inhabit the land, when they come during the revolution, when they work the orchards late, things to a sort of agricultural story of my own life and my own family. And so I constantly ask questions about the geography of memory, the right to the land, the sense of the origin, the manipulation of space, all of these things. It's such a gives us such great tools to understand. And Beardstown, unfortunately, just happens to be one of my main targets because it makes full work and I need to know why. And you're going to tell me something. <laughs> Not unfortunately, fortunately. <laughs> and yeah, the way I would put what what like Soja is talking about in more academic language is Bierstadt is active in creating imperial possibility. And I would go a step further and will, I must add, in a forthcoming book and point to how he's, he's celebrating the eradication and elimination, to use terms from the 1850s, of Native Americans from specific places he was painting. And this is not a reading backward. That is what he was intentionally doing. We know because he told us so. So I mentioned, and I think you did too, that in ancient cartographies, there's a plant in the lower left-hand corner, plants of all sorts, from corn to poppies to, you know, 83 other things, are in a heck of a lot of your works on paper. Why do plants interest you? And are there narratives kind of beyond the imperial that they help you build and address? Yes. I think they're also signs of sustenance. So one of the things that we engage in when we examine these paths is try to understand how we survived it. How did we? What, what were the tools that allowed us to keep going? And that's important because then you pass that on to the next generation. And in the Chicano idiom, the, the sort of iconography, corn is always, and the magues are always seen as sort of bedrock to the survival of, of a culture and a community, even to present time. I mean, you can almost go anywhere in any place where Mexicans and other indigenous people live, and you will find variations on corn, on maguey, cactus. So so for me, the plants represent not just what was taken, but what was shared and what was given, and what we still use to this day to maintain ourselves. So I I use corn often to represent my family, my grandmother especially. She was still making corn tortillas por mano, you know, like slapping her hands together when I was a child. And I remember waiting for the odd-shaped one that went into the reject pile. And we'd all rush in for the little bit of salt and a tiny bit of butter. And they were so warm and hot and they were just so perfect. So the foods themselves are, are a form of culture and they give us a sense of our continuity and our hope 
and the future. So I do use the images and the Zampasuchli or the marigold, which is one of the ones that is my mother and my grandmother, Amalia and Marina, are, are grouped with. That's also a plant of the dead. So, so that agricultural plants run through my work as a sign of my family history, as a sign of these deep cultural survival, and also as a sign of the cycle of life, you know, that we, we begin here and we end here, but we live on. There's a very old saying, it's often used around Days of the Dead, we are like the spring grass, we bud, we blossom, we dry up and blow away, we were never meant to last on this earth. And, and those are native thoughts, but they permeate Mexican thinking. And it's something I carry with me. And it's one of the reasons I get so interested in plants. And I think I might have mentioned to you that I'm starting a, a series on uh, trees that I'm hoping Sandy Rodriguez will help me with. And so there's, you know, a resurgence now with new artists like Sandy who are looking through the codices, looking through the forms of the past, but bringing them up to date, mixing their own paints, using a mate paper. So the old is new again. Our job is to innovate on that tradition so that it sustains itself in new cultural forms. I'm very dedicated to that because it's what helped me get through so much of my life so many things that were a challenge for me. And I was very lucky because I've been married to Richard Baines for oh, 50, 57 years. And he's from an African-American family. My own family's third generation interracially married. So my grandmother was mulatta, married to an American black. So I have had the benefit of a kind of cross-cultural upbringing that has allowed me to look across the world that I inherited and find the connections in the mestizaje, in the tercer raíz, in the ways in which we have survived through our foods and through our practices. You mentioned Sandy Rodriguez. I suspect that one of the many things that Sandy, who has passed guest on this program, will have a link on the show page for this show. I suspect one of the many things Sandy has found and built upon that's within your practice is your interest in maps. You mentioned a map a little earlier when we were talking about one of the Bierstadt addressing works, but you've done a whole lot more with maps than that. I could I could, I could list a long list, but we'll, I'll just put a couple images up on the show page. Why do maps interest you, and how do you choose what you superimpose over them? Well, they interest me because, of course, they're sites of belonging. Mapping is a way of saying this is this and this is not this. And you belong. Arguments. Yeah. yeah. And you do not belong here. And so I find maps a great insight into what was driving people at historical periods of time. And also they're very beautiful. And I, I like reading them, looking at them. And I decide what goes on them based on the historical moment in which that map might have been divided. I was lucky enough to do a project at UCLA's Fowler Gallery. Oh, gosh, was that 2012? It was called the New World Wunderkammer. So one of my interests besides maps has been World's Fairs, Wunderkammers, Cabinets of Curiosity. I look at tools and strategies of colonization to sort of turn them upside down. I want to know... What can I do with them that will undo what they originally did? And so I found in the collection of 
Fowler, of course, I was looking for Mesti Sake. I found African material, colonial material, and Mesoamerican material. And they, of course, it all belonged to them, so I didn't get to take anything away from it. But they did allow me to do a series of prints in which I could resituate what I consider the stolen material and put it back in the context in which it originally came. So in that case, I used maps of Africa and other parts of Mexico and Mesoamerican maps to really look at how to put things back where they were and then use photographs of their practices, the traditions in which they were used, whether it was a dance ceremony, a burial piece. So I found that maps are almost like a, a backdrop of understanding for people looking at contemporary collections of basically of stolen materials or contemporary issues in which we're still fighting over the border. And, you know, there is always, always the notions that the treaties that protected Native people, protected Mexicans when they lost the territory, have all been corrupted and that those treaties are hard to sustain. And so one of the ways you can do it is go back to the maps, but it doesn't always work. I find it as a visual strategy important because sometimes I guess I feel it's a little bit like gaslighting. You feel that the things you're talking about, nobody really believes and might have made them up. But if you can use a document like a map to show happened at certain times, there's a legitimacy to that. People believe maps. And so I, I think in some way that's what drew me to the map as a document of truth. Amalia Mesa Baines, this has been an absolute blast. Thank you. You're welcome. On view through July 16th, 2023 at the Getty Center, The bold new exhibition, Barbara T. Smith, The Way to Be, explores concepts that strike at the core of human nature, including sexuality, technology, and death. Since the 1960s, Smith has been at the forefront of artistic movements in California. Her work has taken various forms, including painting, drawing, installation, video, performance, and artist's books, and often involves her own body as a vehicle for her art. This autobiographical exhibition is Smith's first major museum show, and explores the artist's first 50 years, which were marked by dramatic upheavals in her personal life, as well as the development of her most pioneering works, including her Xerox art and radical early performances. Getty also published Smith's memoir to accompany the show, and the exhibition includes an audio tour narrated by the artist. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio the most extensive exhibition dedicated exclusively to the artist's drawing practice. The exhibition covers the full range of Riley's career, from her student days in the late 1940s, through her groundbreaking black-and-white optical works of the early 1960s, to the innovative color studies she has undertaken from the late 60s to the present day. Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio is co-organized by the Hammer Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Morgan Library and Museum. On view at the Hammer from February 4th through May 28th, 2023. Details at hammer.ucla.edu.
Welcome back. Next up, Michael Duncan joins me to discuss his exhibition, Another World, the Transcendental Painting Group, 1938 to 45, at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. It's up through June 19th. The exhibition presents a group of mostly northern New Mexico-based artists, including Raymond Johnson and Agnes Pelton, who built a spiritually informed abstraction with a painterly language that included symbols and images drawn from the collective unconscious. The show's catalog, and it's a good one, was published by the Crocker Art Museum and Delmonico Books. Amazon and IndieBound offer it for about 60 bucks. Michael Duncan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, thank you, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be here. Obvious place to start. Who or what was the Transcendental Painting Group, and whence the name? They were a group of artists who worked in the Southwest in the late 1930s. There were 10 artists in the group. They were all from New Mexico, except one. There was the honorary member, Agnes Pelton, who was working in a small town called Cathedral City in California on the outskirts of Palm Springs. How she got there is a really interesting story. And her work became known to the members of the group in New Mexico, and they made her a member in absentia. So the group was was united in being abstract artists in a place and time where abstract art was not considered to be the norm at all. (laughs) New Mexico, as I'm sure people are aware of, was a popular spot for artists in the early 20th century. People like Marston Hartley had worked there. Of course, George O'Keefe came there a bit later than him. But uh, the, the artists in this group came to New Mexico mostly because of the landscape. And most of them were landscape painters who had changed <laughs> and become abst- interested in abstract art. And the two main figures in the group were Raymond Johnson, in, and he was centered in, in Santa Fe, and Emil Bistrom, who was centered in Taos. Each of them had kind of acolytes. So these two groups from Taos and Santa Fe came together in 1938 and decided to form an official group, (laughs) the Transcendental Painting Group. They had a manifesto. They wrote uh, statements about who they were and what they represented. And what they represented was the idea of, of spiritual abstraction. They came to use this word transcendental after a lot of discussion. At that time, abstract art was referred to as non-objective. The prototype for the Guggenheim Museum was the Museum of Non-Objective Art. The word transcendental meant a lot to them. And I think what's interesting about it as an alternative to the word (laughs) non-objective is that transcendent and transcendental implies some, a base that you're, you're transcending from. So for these artists, they were really using the landscape and their experience of the landscape to move to a higher plane or a more complex plane or a more uplifting plane and something that was very much an imaginary realm. All of the artists in the group were interested in theosophy, which was the sort of philosophical movement started at the end of the 19th century that that drew on 
ideas from Eastern religions, from the occult, from all sorts of things. It was a really esoteric uh, endeavor that was, uh, Madame Blavatsky was kind of the kingpin of it. And there were a number of writings and it's a whole, it continues to this day as a philosophical uh, take on the world. Let, let me so, let me jump in for just sure. a quick second. So this path to abstraction that involved theosophy and the spiritual was wildly different from the path to abstraction that American artists such as, say, Hartley or Albert Bloch or Manier Dawson had been following in, in Europe a decade or two earlier. And certainly a different path than Clifford Still was following in the Bay Area and then in Richmond. And, and also different from kind of the biomorphic line of abstraction that would kind of spring up or in, in also in New York, especially around, say, Gorky, which is all a very long way of asking how and why did spirituality and theosophy and kind of redefinition of the transcendental become important to a bunch of people in New Mexico in the 1930s? Well, they'd all had different, they all had unique individualistic experiences in the past. Johnson grew up in uh, Chicago and uh, had worked for a small theater group called the Little Theater, which was an experimental theater group in the teens. And he was in charge of lighting. And this group was really interesting because they believed in stripped down basic sets. And uh, the way they kind of controlled what was happening on stage was through lighting, and Johnson was in charge of that. So you can see the importance of light in his work from that very beginning. And he and Bistrom, Bistrom was in New York, but both of them had become followers of a really interesting and strange figure who was Eastern European, Nicholas Rorsch, who was a kind of philosopher, painter, <laughs> Renaissance man. Uh, and actually, in New York, there still is a Rorsch Museum on the Upper West Side up near Columbia. It's it's a brownstone that's filled with his paintings. And his paintings are, are really luminescent landscape paintings of the Himalayas, of all sorts of uh, Eastern religious figures. He was a real mystic. And his wife was a mystic who received messages from the beyond, and they transcribed those messages in a book called Anyi Yoga, which became really important for certain members of the TPG, the Transcendental Painting Group, Agnes Pelton being one of them. She actually made a portrait of Rorsch and his wife, which are two anomalies in her later output. So, so these people, who, these artists, all of them had come from different places, except for one. There was one artist from New Mexico, William Lumpkins, but everybody else had come to New Mexico sort of with a kind of romantic notion in their minds of seeing after they saw this incredible landscape, they decided to stay. And they were enchanted with all sorts of aspects of New Mexico, the Native American culture and the incredible landscape, and also the idea of isolation, of being able to create what they wanted to on their own without being inundated with outside influences. So it's, it's kind of a classic situation where visionary types 
come together to enhance the art that they were wanting to make. I, I think when we, or at least I, think of American artists and an interest in spirituality in the very late 19th and early 20th century, the, the first thing I think of is is Emanuel Swedenborg and Swedenborgism, Swedenborgianism, and kind of the William Keith George Innes line. Did any of these painters have any interest in that path, that history, or not at all? Actually, the unifying factor for them was reading Kandinsky's book on the spiritual in art, which was translated in the teens. Johnson described it as the most important moment in his career of mm. when he was sort of turned on by what Kandinsky was talking about. And uh, that was the motivating factor. And, and the thing about the group and theosophy, although they were quite steeped in it, none of them were really doctrinaire about it. Bistrom, to some degree, Bistrom would use symbols, esoteric symbols in some of his paintings. There's one uh, painting that's in, in the show uh, of his depiction of Lord Mayatrera, who was uh, a religious figure in, I think it's Hinduism, but it's a uh, very abstracted, almost, it's like a constellation of, uh, that, that's this figure in the sky. The other aspect of them that's really interesting to me is how formalistic they are. And they were all insistent on the formal qualities of their work. There was no automatic writing. There was no taking direction from spirits from beyond. They were creating what they were making. And, and you can definitely see it in, in the best works in the show. Um, I mean, Pelton is such a master at taking elements from nature and creating her own worlds from them. The waterfall, you'll see some kind of uh, starburst, but it's, it's both she uses she uses nature as a symbol that reflects something more than something complex and uh, multifarious i remember dane rudyard who was kind of the philosopher <laughs> of the group. He wrote a whole book about the Transcendental Painting Group in 1938, and he was involved in the formation of the group. He wasn't an official member, but he was there to write about it and to be their kind of in-house critic. He described Pelton's work as what she used in her work as biopsychological symbols, which I think is really interesting, the idea of biopsychological, because it's getting the human into nature in a direct way. I think her, her paintings are so, it's so easy to respond to her work, but you can go so far with each painting. They're really contemplative masterpieces. Well, I'm glad you brought up Agnes Pelton because I think Agnes Pelton's really great and I'm delighted to talk about, about Pelton. One of the things that I see in a lot of Pelton's work, paintings such as Winter from 1933 or Lost Music 2 from the 1950s, is that forms in Pelton are often ascending. You know, it seems like stuff is moving, something in the center of the painting is, is appears to be moving up in the painting, heading toward right. the top. Right. So there's certainly a way to understand that within centuries of Christian art. Is that what Pelton intended or was riffing on or not at all? 
Well, I think it was her experience of nature. Uh, you know, she was reportedly, she loved to wander around in the desert and uh, observe the sky and sunsets and sunrises, uh, moonrises. I think that that's really what she's expressing. And she has a lot of really nice statements about how light is the premier element in uh, what she was trying to capture. And the idea of light as a transcendent force in our life, I think it transcends Christian imagery. It's, you know, it's just basic, (laughs) basic to the experience of life. And, you know, if you look at any of her pictures, I mean, one of her paintings is called Light Center. Another is Star Icon. I mean, you, you see that kind of rising mist that that's light filled and and, you know formally she was so accomplished at getting those layers and getting Mm -hmm. that modulation of color she left extensive notebooks where she planned every painting and every color was was planned and thought about so they're very deliberate paintings she was a very slow painter so these took a long time and the way she would put them together is very skilled i mean it's interesting with with some of the other painters too with johnson johnson was an an early user of airbrush and he used it in watercolor and in wash so i'm not even that familiar with how that works (laughs) with Mm. watercolor in particular but his modulation of color is really amazing and it was interesting because i had to write the wall labels for the show and i wanted to, to to have one wall label talking about his use of airbrush at that point i hadn't been able to see all the paintings in person and there was one painting that it looked to me like it was airbrush. And so I put in my blurb about airbrush for that painting. And then when I saw the painting in person, I realized this is not airbrush. He had stippled the paint uh, so precisely with his brush that in photography, it looked like airbrush. So, mm. I, uh, so that was really interesting to see, you know, that that he found a medium that made what his intentions were easier, you know, it, 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 or he, he used a medium to replace a former way of, of putting a painting together. Your description of Pelton's interest in light and spirituality inevitably recalls a spectacularly overquoted Emerson line, which is, I become a transparent eyeball, I am nothing. I see all the currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part or parcel of God, a line in Emerson's 1836 book, Nature. Were any of these artists interested in, I guess, transcendentalism as a revisionist scholarship path or in Emersonian transcendentalism and the relationship between man, the supernatural, and nature nature in the same way Emerson was? Well, they, they some of them mentioned Emerson. But I never saw any evidence of any uh, citations in their notebooks or or that kind of thing. They were all so involved in, in so many so many different sources went into their thinking. And Emerson was one of them, but so was Kandinsky's, and you know, so was Blavatsky. All all sorts of things. Um, Annie Besant, you know, who who wrote this book. Uh, she was a theosophist who had a book called Thought Forms that dealt with sort of synesthetic ideas about color. And uh, she actually has a chart in that book 
of all sorts of modulations of color, almost like a, a paint chart from a from a paint store. And each of the each of the shades has a particular human emotion attached to it. So there'll be one that's malice. There's one that's uplift. Yeah, all sorts of things. And and, and that kind of color color theory meant a mm. lot to these artists. And they they each had their own responses to different colors and and what they thought those colors represented. I mean, you can see it. You can see that kind of thinking in uh, Bistrom's painting. Is it Oversoul, the one with the kind of rainbow uh, shards of color coming out from it? Big Emerson word, Oversoul. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In, in, in fact, uh, I think it was, I, I, I think Marsden Hartley himself wrote about and talked about how important Emerson's concept of the Oversoul was to him. Right, right. Oh, no, the painting I'm talking about is Creative Forces from 1936. There is another great uh, Bistrom painting called Oversoul that's in the show. Those emanations of, of rainbow shades of, uh, of color are um, definitely a statement <laughs> about what he would consider to be the kind of heart of, of spirituality. Let's talk about Raymond Johnson's paintings a little bit. Taking Johnson's Case in Tempera, number one from 1939, a picture at the Albuquerque Museum, one of the show venues. Maybe could you detail how that painting is a Johnson address of the spiritual? Right. Well, it's first of all, it's a perfect example of what I was just talking about with Airbrush, where you see yeah. an incredibly masterful creation of that center orb, getting the shading on it exactly right in kind of modulations of a kind of maroon color. But uh, one of the things I gravitated towards in choosing work by him uh, for the show. I knew, I think there are 14 works by him that were in the show. It was very difficult to choose just 14 to be representative of, of his career because he had a very long and varied career. I wanted, you know, obviously to choose the ones that I felt reflected the transcendental painting modus in the best way. Well, what became interesting was that most of the ones I chose had some kind of central orb in it. And that circle shape for him was such an important uh, feature of his work, kind of organizing a composition around a circle that could represent either a planet or the human eye here in this painting because of that closed shape on the on the left it really resembles an eye in a certain degree but an eye that's emanating layers of light in different colors johnson really stuck to the basics he didn't generally <laughs> elaborate his compositions into into too many different directions so i think his best work is is his most simple and emblematic and after the dissolution of the Transcendental Painting Group, he went on to do more minimalist abstract work. So it's kind of interesting that he took, took their project in that direction, stripping things down. But here, I think that this kind of cosmic vision with overlapping colors, with light permeating through them, is really, uh, you can't take it any other way than as something that is a spiritualized abstraction. For me, just working on this show, uh, it, it became so evident to me that the differentiation of what they were doing from 
the abstract work that was done by a lot of the New York artists at that time, people like Borgonia Diller or Leon Pope Smith or Irene Rice Pereira, their work I love, but it has a kind of formal rigidity to it. It's pinned down. Their compositions are pinned down. Exactly. And and with when you have these overlapping colors and this modulation of light within the colors, it's all more fluke free-flowing and more transcendental. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, no, people have asked me, you know, what is it all about? What does it mean? To me, it's all in the painting and that you can see it there if you you let yourself (laughs) to see that the sort of fluid movements in Johnson's work is, is really kind of breathtaking. The last artist I wanted to bring up, I think, is a her work is a perfect example of what you just described. That's Florence Miller Pierce. The I don't know forms the the kind of morphing forms in her drawings and paintings seem to float. You know, they aren't necessarily ascending the way Pelton's forms are. Florence Miller Pierce's just float, hover, float. And maybe a good example of that is um, a terrific 1942 painting called Blue Forms. Right, right. No, you're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's, she isolates these forms on a, on a field, very modulated color. You know, in Blue Forms, it's definitely a sky yeah. and this strange sort of biomorphic shape floating and hovering there. And as a biomorphic form, it's certainly different than Gorky's biomorphic forms. It's definitely in a more uplifting (laughs) manner. What's really amazing about her was that she was only 20 years old when uh, she came to Taos and uh, she enrolled in Bistrom's school. Bistrom had a school in Taos where three of the artists, three of the students joined the group the transcendental painting group, and she was one of them. So she was really, she describes it in interviews as being a shock when she came there and all of a sudden she's hearing about theosophy and and all sorts of esoteric philosophies. She had been a nice Presbyterian girl growing up in, in on the East Coast, and, and here she was being inundated with, with all of this stuff in this amazing physical environment of Taos, which is, you know, still quite an isolated spot in the United States and with an incredible landscape all around it. So, uh, yeah, she really rose to the occasion. And she had, she ended up having a long career. Uh, She became known for her resin sculptures or resin reliefs later in the 70s. And she lived into this century. So, one of the aspects of this exhibition that really interested me was that the the artists in the group, if you look at their whole careers, they range, the, the stylistic references in their work range from symbolism because Agnes Pelton and Johnson made paintings back in the teens that had a symbolist affinities. Mm. And then you take it through to the end with, with uh, Florence Pierce and the later work of Johnson relating to minimalism. And along the way, you have hard-edged abstraction, you have abstract expressionism because William Lumpkins was really, his work resembles a lot of abstract expressionism. So you really get a range of, of what 
of what the whole century was about through this group, but with this special moment <laughs> in the late 30s where they did something, kind, I think, kind of unique in American art history, although it relates to all sorts of other artists, but really concentrating on this idea of spiritual abstraction. Yeah, Lumpkin's work veers into, into John Marin watercolor territory, really. Yeah. Michael Duncan, thanks so much. Pleasure. <laughs> That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.